The Sermons of St. Francis de Sales for Advent and Christmas. Continuing his sermon for the second Sunday after Epiphany, the Wedding Feast of Cana. Our Lord chose to begin the Gospel by this first sign of the changing of water into wine. He chose to end his ministry of preaching by changing wine into blood. He performed the first miracle at a banquet, and the last, the Eucharist, at another banquet. He changed water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana, and at the Last Supper, which was as the wedding feast of this sacred spouse, he transformed bread into his flesh and wine into his blood. With this transubstantiation, he began to solemnize those nuptials which he consummated on the tree of the cross, for the day of the Savior's death was the day of his marriage. In brief, in his first miracle, he changed water into wine, and in the last one which he performed before his death, he instituted the Eucharist, the sacrament of his true presence. We believe this truth and this mystery, which, along with the Incarnation, is the greatest and most hidden of all. Because faith teaches it, we believe that Jesus Christ is in this most holy sacrament, body and soul. The Apostle says that the Christian is nourished with the living flesh and blood of the living God. And this is true. This truth may contradict our senses, which perceive nothing of its reality. Yet we believe it, and even believe it with greater delight the more our senses fail us here. Because of the hidden nature of the sacred mystery of the Eucharist, divine providence has provided us with thousands of proofs of this truth in hundreds of places, both in the Gospel and in the Old Testament. Certainly we ought to make a thousand adorations each day to this divine sacrament in thanksgiving for the love with which God dwells among us. Let us now turn to the question of how this miracle was wrought. For this I shall relate the whole of the Gospel story. There was, says St. John, a wedding at Cana in Galilee. This was a small town near Nazareth, where the relatives of the Virgin and our Lord lived. They had a wedding, to which the Savior and his mother had been invited. Some doctors delight in discussing whether the apostles were there as invited guests or not. It is amazing how many different opinions there are on this subject. Let us bypass these arguments and follow what the evangelist says. Besides, many of the ancient fathers think that, since our Lord and his Most Holy Mother were invited, for their sake the apostles were invited as well. St. John says quite clearly, and his disciples. We must follow that view. In any event, our dear Master and Our Lady were invited. They went. But when? Certainly it is likely that the Holy Virgin arrived the evening before. For the women and relatives arrived on the eve of a wedding feast, not only to be received, but also to assist in receiving the other guests, and in this way to pay honor to the bride. This holy lady, who was extremely humble, certainly must have gone the evening before to render this kind service to the bride and bridegroom. The apostles went to this wedding feast, and our Lord did not refuse the invitation either. For, you see, he had come to buy back, to reform and to recreate man. He did not choose to do this with a demeanor that was grave, austere, and rigid, but one that was most kind, polite, and altogether courteous. Thus, being invited, 
he did not excuse himself, but went, and his presence lessened some of the excessive frivolity and revelry usually found on such occasions. Certainly the weddings at which our Lord and Our Lady are present are well-ordered and display great moderation. The contrary is true with many of ours today. They are often full of frivolity and even deceptions. The marriage of Cana was not like this at all, for there is no deceit where our Lord is. How modest this feast must have been, with the Savior's presence causing great restraint. Now I cannot imagine how it happened, but the wine began to fail. The All-Holy Virgin, who was wise, prudent, and full of charity, conceived an admirable expedient to relieve the embarrassment. But what will this holy lady do? For she carries no money with which to buy wine. Her son has none. How does she expect to help these people in their need? She knows she has with her the one who is all-powerful and whose great charity and kindness are very familiar to her. His all-powerful kindness will unfailingly provide for these poor people in their need. It is very likely that it was a marriage of poor people. For this reason, our Lord was invited. In truth, he delighted in dealing with the poor and being with them. He always favored them. More often than not, he was found among them. He loved poverty everywhere, even in king's palaces, and particularly delighted in being in the midst of poverty. If our dear Savior so delights in finding poverty in the houses of the great and at wedding feasts, what will be his delight to find it in religious houses where a vow is made to observe it? His delight will be to find frugality there in the midst of sufficiency, not the absence of necessities, but the absence of superfluities. The Virgin approaches her son, who alone without money can meet this need. Notice what this most holy lady does and says. My Lord, they have no more wine. It is as if she meant to say, My Lord and my son, these people here are poor, and although poverty is extremely lovable and greatly pleasing to you, yet it is often a shameful experience, reducing one to the world's scorn and derision. These good people, your hosts, will experience great shame if you do not help them. I know that you are all-powerful and will provide for their necessity and keep them from shame and humiliation. I never doubt your charity and kindness. Keep in mind the hospitality they have extended to us, inviting us to their banquet. Please provide them with what they need. The Holy Virgin did not need to make a long case to her son of this couple's needs. Skilled in the art of praying, she used the shortest but most excellent way of praying, saying only these words, My son and my Lord, they have no more wine. By these words, this sacred virgin says, You are so kind and charitable. Your heart is so merciful and full of pity. Please grant me what I ask you for these poor people. A most excellent prayer, certainly. One in which this holy lady speaks to our Lord with the greatest reverence and humility imaginable. She goes to her son not with assurance, nor with presumption, as some dare to do, but with the most profound humility, with which she presents to him this couple's needs, convinced that he will provide for them. Thus it is a very good prayer simply to present one's needs to our Lord, place them before the eyes of his goodness, and leave it to him to act as he sees fit, convinced that he will answer according to our needs. 
When, for example, we find ourselves dry, desolate, and disheartened, let us follow the Virgin's example and say to him, Lord, look on me here, poor daughter that I am, desolate, afflicted, full of dryness and aridities. See me here, Lord, poor man that I am, the poorest of all men and full of sins. What do you want? You know well what I need. It is enough for me to present myself to you as I am. You will provide for my miseries and necessities as you see fit. Certainly one can pray not only for spiritual but for temporal things as well. That can and ought to be done, since our Lord himself taught us to do so. In the Lord's Prayer we ask daily that God's kingdom come, it being the beginning and end for which we live, and then that his will be done, that will being the sole means to that beatitude. But besides that, we make another request, namely, that he give us our daily bread. Holy Church even has special prayers by which we ask God for temporal favors, such as prayers for peace in time of war, for rain in time of drought, and for fair weather in time of too much rain. The point is absolutely clear. We can and ought to ask God for both our spiritual and temporal needs. There are two ways of asking things of our Lord. The first is to pray as the Virgin prayed. The other is more specific, asking for such and such a thing or that he deliver us from some evil, always under the condition that it be according to his will, not ours. But ordinarily we do not implore him so specifically. You may come across a person who is wholly committed to piety and who in all her prayers asks for great consolation. That is good. But if you ask, she'll say, I ask also for humility, for I am not humble, yet I see that one can do nothing without that dear virtue. I also ask for the love of God, which renders everything so light and easy. It is good to ask for humility. This ought to be our most treasured virtue. And it is a good thing to ask and long for divine love. Yet I assure you that your request for humility and love is not as good as it ought to be. For do you not see that you do not really desire humility, but only the feeling of humility? You wish to feel that you are humble, and with that feeling to know that you have it. This must not be done. For to have this virtue, it is not necessary to have its feeling. On the contrary, those who are truly humble are not really aware of being so. Likewise, to love God, it is not necessary to feel that love, for love of God does not consist in feeling, tasting, and enjoying his consolations. You can be very humble and love God very much without feeling so. Oh, that I might love God like a St. Catherine of Siena or a St. Teresa. You are deceiving yourself. Say more honestly that you wish to have the ecstasies, the feelings of love and humility of a St. Teresa or a St. Catherine of Siena. For it is not love that you want, but it's consoling feeling. It is only the lack of feelings of which we complain, for we wish to taste and relish everything. Wait a little, my dear souls. Here below is not the place for tastes and feelings. Wait till you are in heaven above, where you will experience humility and enjoy its sweetness. You will see then how much you love God, and will taste the consoling sweetness of his love. But in this life, the Lord wills us to live between fear and hope, to be humble and love him without necessarily feeling.
either. This has been taken from The Sermons of St. Francis de Sales for Advent and Christmas, translated by Nuns of the Visitation, and edited by Father Louis S. Fiorelli, OSFS. Published in 1987 by Tan Books and Publishers, Incorporated, Rockford, Illinois, and aired with permission of the publisher. This book may be purchased online at www.tanbooks.com or by calling toll-free 1-800-437-5876. This has been Christian Classics with Teresa Hofer. Listen every Monday through Friday at this time as Teresa continues her great readings and selections from classic Christian literature right here on the Ave Maria Radio Network, news and talk for Catholic and other Christians. <laughs>